Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute, hosted by Georgina Downer. Hello and welcome to Afternoon Light. Today I am joined by Lord Hannon of Kingsclear, or Daniel Hannon, as he is more commonly known. Dan is an author and columnist. He serves on the UK Board of Trade. And I first met him, oh, quite a few years ago, I think seven or so years ago, in Prague when he was a Conservative member of the European Parliament, a job that he very enthusiastically campaigned to put himself out of as the founder of the Vote Leave campaign for the UK to leave the EU and he was successful and it's lovely to have you on Afternoon Light and see you here in Australia. Oh, it's lovely to be back here, Georgina. Thank you. We met, of course, in Prague in 2016, just after the Brexit referendum, which had been held in June. And of course, you were in a state of high jubilation, as was I, having been a supporter from afar of the vote to leave. They were great times, although I do recall at that conference we met at, there were some colleagues of yours in the European Parliament who weren't so enthusiastic. But we've now reached the three-year anniversary that occurred on Tuesday, the 31st of January. How has it gone? How has Brexit gone in your view, Daniel? The biggest factor in understanding how it's played out is that it's been implemented by people who didn't want it to happen. Yeah. First by Theresa May, who'd voted Remain. And like a lot of Remainers, she couldn't see any possible reason for anyone to have voted leave except hostility to immigration. And so she came late and ham-fistedly to the leave cause and implemented a rather hopeless version of it, or pursued a hopeless version of it, where it was all about border control. She never understood that there were economic or democratic or constitutional arguments for leaving the EU. And that almost from the off, put as a massive disadvantage in the way it shaped up. But a much bigger factor was that the standing bureaucracy, the civil service and the quangos, were inveterately opposed to it. And even now, when it's fact, not an easy fact to undo, still emotionally struggle to let go. So there is a huge institutional inertia, for example, about diverging from EU standards. Mm. Even though we now don't get any preferential export penetration by keeping these standards, but they just find it so hard to let go. They don't want to diverge. Maybe on some level they think they're keeping the door open for re-entry. Just this morning as we record this podcast, there was a speech by Michel Barnier, who had been the EU negotiator, saying, of course, the door is open for you, but you mustn't diverge too much. There may be a little bit of that. But the result of all this is that we have not seized the opportunities in the way that we could have done. Yes, we've done some things. We have our FTA with Australia. We're joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We had a much faster vaccine rollout. I'm not sure AUKUS could have happened if we were really still in the EU. And we've started some deregulation in financial services and things like gene editing. But honestly, it's not 5% of what it ought to have been by now. And that is very disappointing. And I guess Theresa May had come to the prime ministership with the background of being your Australian equivalent of an immigration minister, hadn't she? So she had that interest and that, as you say, she was pretty myopic in her dealing with Brexit. But then you had Boris, and Boris was the leader, definitely the base of the Vote Leave campaign. If anyone could have delivered a proper Brexit, surely it was going to be Boris. So it's really important to get the chronology here. So Boris and Michael Gove, who'd been the two 
obvious kind of contenders for the leadership managed to disembowel each other, as did Andrea Leadsom, who was the other leader. So Theresa May almost accidentally became leader in the summer of 2016, just because everyone else had dropped out. She then held an election mm. in the summer of 2017 and lost her majority. And this is the absolutely critical fact to understand if you want to see why Brexit has played out as it has. Because the majority in the House of Commons from the summer of 2017 was anti-Brexit. And I don't just mean that they were anti-Brexit in that they privately didn't like the idea. They seized control of the parliamentary timetable, an act with a full force of law called the Ben Act, which said in terms that they would not permit Britain to leave the European Union except on conditions that Brussels liked, right? Literally, of course, they didn't use the phrase except on terms that Brussels liked. What they said was, we will not permit a no-deal Brexit, right? Mm -hmm. They've said that in every TV studio, in every parliamentary debate. But if you think about it, we will not permit a no-deal Brexit is exactly the same as we will only leave on terms that the other side approves. Yeah, by its very nature. Of course, that's literally what the words mean. You had to have a deal. So at that point... Brussels had to be happy. And at that point, Brussels started tabling all sorts of demands that up until then it had not occurred to them to put on the table. Things like the Northern Ireland Protocol and dynamic alignment so that we'd have to follow all their standards and all this kind of stuff. In a way, I don't blame them. But what I really do blame is the people who created this situation knowingly and cynically created it because they were trying to stop Brexit from happening. They were trying to make the terms so bad that we would change our minds that these people now shamelessly turn around and go, oh, not not going as well as you hoped, is it? When it was entirely they who created the situation. So Boris then became prime minister, if you like, inheriting this lack of parliamentary majority. He then won the election in December 2019. So at that point... With a huge majority. With a huge majority. Now, at that point, of course the deal had basically been done, right? So he had limited room for manoeuvre. But there was at least the possibility that he could have started diverging and so on. He had, what, 10 weeks between winning the election and the lockdown. And at that point, the whole country was overtaken by the COVID crisis and the opportunities of Brexit, I suppose, understandably, were pushed way down the agenda. So when we look at the facts and figures of how the economy in Britain has done more broadly out of Brexit versus, say, for example, the European Union. Now, obviously, it's not the Brexit you would have liked, Mm. but it is as it is. How is the UK doing? Because certainly the journalists that we read in Australia give a pretty gloomy picture of what's going on in the UK. Yeah, and even more in Europe. And they're taking their cue from the most Europhile media in London, which tend to be the ones that are most widely read overseas, particularly the BBC, the Financial Times, The Economist. The people who own and edit and write for those publications or broadcast for them never saw Brexit as a vote for self-government or a vote for a different trade policy. They saw it as a kind of Trumpian rejection of everything they held dear, a kind of horrifying revelation of how nasty their fellow countrymen were. So they've been deeply psychologically affected by it. And They've spent seven years or six and a half years in these displacement activities of trying to pretend that it was all done with Russian money or God knows what. It's extraordinary, actually, the adults behaving this way. But look, Brexit could have been much more successful had we been a bit more ambitious about deregulation, about trade, about divergence. Having said all of that, when you bear in mind the global situation, the pandemic and now the Ukraine war, Britain is not doing badly. Certainly, it is a far cry from the catastrophist coverage that we get, particularly overseas. In the run-up to the referendum, we were told that 
the act of voting no would lead to an immediate recession. 2016 and 2017, there'd be a recession, there'd be a spike in unemployment, collapse in investment, collapse of the stock exchange. And when I say we were told this, I don't mean we were just told this by Remain campaigners. Fair enough that they're going to make that claim. We were told this by the IMF, by the OECD, by the Bank of England, by the Treasury. And they weren't just wrong. They were spectacularly wrong. The opposite happened. The economy grew faster than the EU. Unemployment fell to its lowest ever level. The stock exchange surged. Investment carried on. In fact, FDI has just broken the two trillion mark. So they were spectacularly wrong. The UK outperformed the European Union in 2016, in 2017, in 2018, in 2019. Then came the lockdown. And it's one of those unfortunate coincidences that the first cases of COVID were reported in the UK on the day that Brexit took effect, Mm. 31st of January 2020. And those two facts have been deliberately and cynically mixed and merged by people who are trying to blame our woes on Brexit. We had a terrible 2020 because we locked down unnecessarily hard and for an unnecessarily long period. It really is that simple. You can't close shops and businesses and pay people to stay home and not expect a massive economic hit. Now, yes, other countries suffered the same thing, but I would say you can plot on a graph an almost exact correlation between how strict a lockdown was and how bad the economic hit was. So Sweden got off fairly lightly, as did Florida and the US states that didn't lock down. Then you have a sort of middle rank of sort of Germany and Netherlands. I'd put Australia in that middle rank. And then you have the countries that locked down hardest, Italy, Britain, Spain, my native Peru, where it was commensurately tough. But if this had been a Brexit effect, you'd have expected it to carry on. In fact, in 2021 and in 2022, The UK was the fastest growing economy in the G7. So it is a lie to say that this is Brexit effect. It's a lockdown effect. I'll make one concession, which is that in any shift, whenever you make any change in your arrangements, there is always going to be some short-term cost. Of course. The the line I kept using on the stump during the referendum when I was on the campaign trail is I would say, this is going to be like moving house, Mm. right? We may move to a larger and more comfortable and more spacious house, but the move itself is still going to be stressful. There is no way of moving house stress-free. It can't be done. And I think everyone understands that. So everyone gets the concept of a short-term cost for long-term gains. Short-term cost of changing and disrupting our trade patterns versus the long-term gains of better regulation and more trade with the Pacific and the rest of the world. What I think would be absolutely crazy is to accept that short-term cost, which to repeat is trivial compared to the cost of the lockdown, but exists, and then forfeit the long-term gains because we somehow hanker after eventual re-entry or simply because we can't bear the thought of doing it. And I'm afraid there are some British politicians, I sit opposite a lot of them in the House of Lords, if they can't stop Brexit happening, they can at least stop it succeeding. And they've now got themselves into this insane position of even opposing trade deals with Australia and New Zealand because they cannot bear to see any good come out of it at all. Yeah, it's very interesting how the debate over over Brexit now hinges on bean counting, basically. So I've been listening to the three years on, how did it go debates online, and you have Brexiteers saying we've got our nation back, our sovereignty back. Things actually are going pretty well despite COVID and Ukraine. But then the antis say, oh, look at this figure, look at that figure. And as you say, not actually giving it the context it requires, which is that the world is in a very difficult set of economic circumstances. And hypotheticals are all very well and good, but 
if Britain had stayed within the EU, likely well, the government yeah. would have taken pretty similar positions on COVID and, and lockdowns. And we didn't on the hook for this massive COVID reconstruction fund, which would have come disproportionately from our budget because we were a big net contributor. We'd have had probably about 8,000 extra regulations that we haven't had to implement in the three years that we've been out. But people are very bad at arguing the counterfactual. It is often the case in politics that you are choosing among bad options. If you do X, negative consequences will follow. And if you don't do X, a different set of negative consequences will follow. But whichever one you choose, the media and your opponents will jump on those negative consequences and say, I should have got the other. You should have done the other. You should have taken the other fork in the road. Because people are just really bad at trade-offs, or at least in the media, they affect to be bad at trade-offs and they pretend not to understand lesser evils. But the truth is that since COVID, we have been in a world of lesser evils, right? There have been no good outcomes since the lockdowns. We're managing difficult times. Now, we definitely made some mistakes and got some things badly wrong in terms of locking down excessively. I don't think there's any question that knowing what we now know, we wouldn't do some of the things we did. On the other hand, we had a much faster vaccination program than the EU did, and much faster than we would have been able to do had we been part of the EU's procurement scheme. And that allowed us to come out of it earlier, right? So in a world of lesser evils, I don't think we've done badly. But the point you just made, though, there, Georgina, about, was about democracy. I think this is a really important point that my Remainer friends really struggle with, because they're always saying, what were you really voting for? Yeah. Okay, you voted leave, but what was that actually about? Well, I can't speak for all 17 million leave voters, but I was voting leave to be out of the EU, and that has succeeded spectacularly, thank you very much. And the next general election in the UK will be the first one that will return a fully sovereign parliament in which we get to hire and fire the people who pass our laws and no foreign court is superior over our law on our own territory. And that's job done. Everything else, in a way, is detail. You could say, now that you've got these freedoms back, you're using them incorrectly. You should have done A instead of B. Okay, fine. But that's not an argument against Brexit. That's an argument about how we use the powers that we get back. So, for example, people say... A lot of people say, look, we have these terrible labour shortages, and because of Brexit, we don't have enough barmaids and plumbers and By whatever. the way, we have labour shortages sure. here, and we were never part of no. the EU, and we didn't leave the EU. All, so. all, all, all over the world. All <laughs> over the world. Again, failure of perspective. But even if you think that we should have a more generous immigration policy, okay, fine. Then you are arguing for a more generous immigration policy. You're not arguing against Brexit. You're arguing for a different use of the powers that we've now got back. And the great advantage of Brexit is that we now get to decide these things. We don't get so to blame anybody else. With a else. click of their fingers, the government could actually change the rules who can come to Britain and presumably work visa arrangements and allow all these Bulgarian of course. would-be barmaids and labourers yes. in. Yeah, we could do they? that. Could happen. We could do that. And what is infuriating is the utter dysfunctionality of our Home Office which is unable to keep people out and unable to let people in. It's equally bad at stopping the boats crossing the channel and at issuing the visas for Ukrainian refugees or whatever. It's just an utterly useless, dysfunctional bureaucracy. I was very disappointed that we didn't try to get a general mobility of labour in our Australia and New Zealand deal. Australia and New Zealand have basically such an arrangement between themselves we could have trilateralized that. Now, all the Europhiles in Britain said, oh, no, the Australians will never do that. They don't want all these sort of useless, lazy, unemployable Brits. Actually, all the opposition was on the British side. Right. You know, in the talks, Australia and New Zealand were going, yeah, yeah, you want to do mobility? That's great. We love the idea. Our Home Office, because they're under such pressure 
for not being able to stop the illegal immigration, they do this classic thing of saying, well, here's one door that we can shut. Even though the whole country wanted that door open. But free movement of people with Australia and New Zealand is off the scale in popularity in all three countries. It polls incredibly high. I've seen some of the data, right? It's about the easiest, most uncontroversial thing that could realistically be done tomorrow by the government. It's incredibly disappointing that we're reluctant to take full advantage. But your government, ultimately, the ministers, the prime minister, are in charge of the final outcome of the deal. And they weren't moved by those sentiments. You're an advisor to the Board of Trade, Daniel. Weren't able to champion our cause? No, well, I tried. In fact, I have to say, in fairness, the Trade Department can be a bit useless as well. But they were quite ambitious. They were worried about setting precedents. There was a little voice of caution saying, if we give this to Australia, then India is going to demand the same and countries with much lower GDP and it's going to be harder to say no. But I don't think that would have been a decisive objection had it not been for the Home Office absolutely, resolutely refusing to sign off on it. But ultimately, the Home... Is it your Home Affairs Minister, the Secretary for... um, Yes. Shouldn't they... Push yeah, back against yeah, the bureaucracy? Uh, I mean, that's yeah. surely... And to be fair, although I'm disappointed, there are mobility provisions which are liberalisation. They are a significant improvement on where we were. It's just a pity that they stop short of what I'd like to see, which is an assumption that any Australian can take up a job in the UK. So this wouldn't imply family reunification or benefits claims or any other rights beyond not needing to get a special visa. You'd be allowed to just get a job. There's an assumption of reciprocal work. I still hope for a kind of Kanzuk deal where this will happen. Because again, it is popular in every one of those countries. And there's an organization that promotes Kanzuk based in Vancouver. They do regular polling. And in every state in Australia, there is overwhelming support for free movement among the countries, as there is in every part of the UK, part of every province of Canada, New Zealand, slightly more centralised country, both islands of New Zealand. It could be done very easily. Our friend Tony Abbott always says it should be Kanzucks, including Singapore. Okay, maybe. Again, comparable level of GDP, interoperable standard. That could nestle very nicely inside the CPTPP. Kanzuk is something you have been pursuing for a long time, way before you became an advisor to the Board of Trade, when you were yep. was still an MEP, I think. Yes, yes, indeed. But what about the CPTPP, the Comprehensive Compre- and Progressive it- Agreement Towards a Trans-Pacific yeah. Partnership? That was entirely to humour that nitwit Justin Trudeau, by the it, way. I mean, he insisted on the name. It is the worst name yep. of any trade agreement yep. known in the yep. history of the globe. But anyway, the CPTPP... Britain is keen to join. That's great. We would welcome that in Mm. Australia, of course. But what are the prospects? I think they are strong. Great. And I'd be incredibly disappointed if it hasn't happened by the end of this year. Incredibly disappointed. The way it works is you sign the accession, the deed of accession. It's never happened before because we're going to be the first new member. But that then goes live when I think it's nine of the other countries have ratified. I think there is every hope that the UK will be a full member in 2023. And by the way, there's a queue forming behind us. Ecuador wants to join, Taiwan and China want to join, which is very encouraging because I think people see that this is where the action is, that this is where the growth is going to be. So obviously there were Ramonas who were the anti-Brexit people Mm. in the UK. They're now rejoiners. Does that put paid to the rejoiners' hopes that Britain will one day see sense and rejoin the EU? Yes, it does make it much, much harder for them. Joining the CPTPP, it's an enormous economic block. This is when global Britain can really become global Britain. And it implies a significant liberalisation of standards. So 
CPTPP is based on mutual product recognition in general. So for things like agrarian and food exports, CPTPP just sticks to WTO rules. The European Union doesn't. The European Union is in many ways in defiance of WTO rules because the WTO rules specify that any restrictions on food should be based on the science, and the European Union barely pretends to do that. For example, it bans most Australian beef, most American beef, and most Argentine beef, and so on, on grounds that Australia uses growth hormones that are used everywhere in the world except in the EU. And this was really not ever a scientific ban. There was a glut of beef in the 90s, largely as a sort of byproduct of the milk quota regime that they had at that time in Brussels. And they were looking on purely protectionist grounds for some peg on which to hang their protectionism. And they noticed that there was this one hormone that was not used in the EU. So they jumped on that. Now, this has been condemned by the WTO. Even the EU's own scientific advisory body says that there's no justification for it. So if the UK starts using WTO rules, in other words, starts following the science, then that represents a real divergence from the European Union. And that makes re-entry much harder. And I think this is what is panicking the rejoiners. I think they can get away. They feel that they could probably get away with the Australia and New Zealand deals, if that's all there is. Because the EU, in order to get us back in, would sign Australia and New Zealand deals that more or less replicate what we've done, or close enough, or give us the quote, or whatever it is. That is going to be much, much harder if we join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. And they know it. Because you can't amend the terms of the CPTPP. It's done. It's in place. So joining it, you are agreeing to it as it is. So the EU joining the CPTPP is not within the realms of possibility. I just don't see it happening in a million years. By the way, if it did, if we had the kind of European Union that was capable of joining CPTPP, then that would have been the kind of European Union that we'd have had much less problem about being a member of. Tell me, Daniel, moving away from trade, one thing that struck me over the last year now has been the incredible leadership of the UK, and I guess particularly Boris Johnson at the time, on its response to the Ukraine crisis and the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. Do you think that the UK could have taken such a strong position and a leadership position if it had been in the EU? It's the same answer as I'd give on the vaccines. In a very narrowly legal sense, technically, yes. In practice, nobody thinks it would have happened. Yes, we could have done our own vaccination scheme supposedly as EU members. But in fact, if you look at the pressure, even as non-members for us to join from all the Europhiles, no one actually thinks that would have happened. And it's the same on foreign policy. Yes, we've fought the Iraq war and other countries didn't or whatever. But the idea that we would have really stepped outside the common EU front, I think it is not credible. By the way, this wasn't just a military thing. We were able to lead the way on our economic response, not just on sanctions, which to be honest, I'm not, I think sanctions are a bit of a distraction. I don't think they ever really work. But I was delighted that the UK took the lead in lifting all restrictions on Ukrainian exports. So the EU, although it had an association agreement with Ukraine, still had a number of restrictions on Ukrainian goods, particularly on Ukrainian agriculture. The UK said, look, given the condition of Ukraine, they need every penny to pay for what they're doing. Anything that they want to sell, we will lift all restrictions. What were the basis of those restrictions? Were they biosecurity? Uh, or Yes. Yeah. So there were some quotas. It was mainly the inspections for standards. And what Ukraine was saying is, look, we've lost our coastline, so anything we export now has to go through the EU, Mm. right? If you really are that fussy, EU, about standards, okay, fine, but can we at least transit with sealed lorries so that we can (laughs) sell to Egypt or whatever? Can you at least let us do that? No, we've got our rules. Anyway, the UK went ahead with that and attracted a certain amount of criticism. But then 
the moral pressure for Brussels to follow became overwhelming. And about six or seven weeks later, they announced that they were following suit. So there are examples, I would say, of leadership like that. I was struck too by the way Italy and Germany, who had been traditionally quite Mm. close to Russia, reliant on Russia, capitulated in light of the UK taking such a strong stance on Russia and being so helpful to Ukraine. Were they shamed into falling into line? No, Italy was very reluctant. Yes, Italy, I think, was very reluctant and the Italian people were quite reluctant. In the case of Germany, to be fair, the German government was pursuing the traditional policy that they pursued even during the Cold War of maintaining cordial relations with Russia at all costs. The German public was way ahead of the politicians. Mm. I think German voters were demanding, not in every case, but German voters wanted a much stronger position than they got from their leaders. And eventually, I think that was the factor that told It's an interesting thing that Ukraine has inadvertently made the case for national independence. For an awful lot of cosmopolitan liberals who up until now have said nationalism is a dangerous, atavistic, destructive force, it's one step away from ethnic hatred and holocausts and all the rest of it, suddenly they're all flying Ukrainian flags. And what's Ukraine fighting for? Ukraine is fighting for the right to have a fully sovereign existence within the integrity of its border, free to pursue a policy without being told what to do by neighbours, right? I don't want to overdo this. Ukraine wants to join the EU, although it's obviously circumstances are hugely different, and that's mainly a sort of security bid from them. But it has, if you like, knocked on the head this idea the nation state is some bizarre hangover from the 19th century that's just on borrowed time. It's still a pretty powerful force for freedom. And in fact, I would say that there is no more secure vessel for liberty and human rights than a national state. How has the reputation of the nation state fared in the EU, though? The UK voting for Brexit is obviously asserting a sense of national identity, of separateness, of sort of sense of protection of your ability to determine your own destiny through your democratic system, your own democratic system, and be represented by your own people. But in the EU, there are still more and more efforts to really create a proper United States of Europe. Is nationalism a dirty word? You see the election, for example, in Italy of Mm. Giorgia Maloney, who's instantly characterised as Mussolini Mark II, falling to the hard right authoritarians at the gates of Europe or Mm. within the gates of Europe, crush it and destroy it from within. Is that true? It's yeah. been interesting observing this from well, Australia. There was a lo- yeah, there was a lovely piece by my friend Jonah Goldberg of the National Review and Dispatch just after George Maloney was elected. He was reading some of this rather hysterical coverage. I actually read their, I'm reading their actual election manifesto and I'm not getting Invade Ethiopia vibes. Well, that's good. Yeah. It's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> the founders of the European Union, to be fair to them, had lived through experiences that our generation, thank God, has been spared. They'd lived through the horrors of war and occupation and the hunger and dislocation that came after it. And they reached the conclusion that the only way to stop war was to merge all these countries together. Now, I think that's fundamentally wrong. Jamming different peoples together makes them more quarrelsome. I think nations live more peacefully as good neighbours rather than as grumbling tenants. But I don't doubt the sincerity of their motive. And that's now become sort of quasi-religious doctrine. Nationalism is the worst thing. It's one step away from genocide. In fact, very often, Eurocrats would make that point in terms. 
France, you have a resurgence, and in fact, Macron seems to be allowing it some latitude of national identity and national pride. So how do EU leaders navigate this? Because there is a sense that countries want to still have a particular identity and preserve some of their cultural and historical characteristics. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, they're not trying to stamp out all the cultural characteristics, right? They're not trying to say the French would have to eat different cheeses or whatever. But what they are doing is removing the capacity of the state to act independently. So the European Union has acquired, one by one, the attributes and trappings of statehood, a foreign policy, overseas embassies and a diplomatic service, a president, a parliament, a passport, a national anthem, a flag... Supreme Court and a criminal justice system, a public prosecution service, all of the things that we would normally say are the defining characteristics of statehood have been either transferred from national level to Brussels or replicated at Brussels level. And this isn't some conspiracy. They're all completely open about this. Sign when I was elected, the sign outside the Berlaymont building in Brussels said, your country. This wasn't some draw the blinds and don't tell anyone. They were and are absolutely overt that they want a federal state of Europe. And good luck to them. But it was obviously never right for the UK. And so in a way, we've returned to the vision that Winston Churchill set out, that there should be a United States of Europe, but it wouldn't include Britain. So doesn't that mean that European leaders or the leaders of individual European member states become less and less important? Yes. They ultimately, what's the point of meeting Emmanuel Macron when you could just meet... Yeah, he'd be, like the, he'd be like the Premier of Victoria or whatever. That's right. right. That's right. And again, I remember Angela Merkel saying this in a very matter-of-fact way. She said the end goal here is that the Commission becomes the Government of Europe. The Council of Europe, where the nations are represented, becomes a kind of Bundesrat, a kind of upper house. And the European Parliament becomes the main legislative democratic body for the EU as a whole. And maybe for a number of the existing members, that is an acceptable future. Maybe that's really how they see themselves. My guess is that as they pursue that goal, some of the other more peripheral, more maritime members will follow Britain into a looser relationship. But that's for them. It strikes me that the well, the founders, like we can understand their context coming out of World War II, but to hold the view that diminishing your national sovereignty for the sake of a pan-European government it seems like these people don't trust themselves to behave well with their neighbours. They think mm. we're going to be replaying the same atrocities that we have experienced over centuries in Europe continually unless we have some architecture that forces us yeah. all to be under the same government. It's I think that is exactly right. Certainly that was the view of most of the founders, not all of them. It strikes me as quite depressing that they can't see a better path well, to Well, José Manuel Barroso, who was the president of the commission, said if nation states were good at making the right decisions, the world wouldn't be in the mess it's in. We need to accept that the people are sometimes wrong and that national democratic mechanisms produce the wrong outcomes. So he at least But about a that. European mechanism would produce the right Precisely <laughs> in his view, precisely because it doesn't need to worry about public opinion. And therefore it could, as he would see it, rise above populism and do the technocratic thing rather than the popular thing. And that was certainly the view of most of the founders. They'd had a very different experience of democracy. They associated it with the kind of plebiscitary democracy that had led to the rise of Mussolini and so on. And Oh and the Nazis. And the Nazis. Too. And so yeah. they were quite overt about saying not completely to eliminate it, but to constrain it, to temper it, and to subordinate it to these wise, judicious, unelected technocrats who will do the right thing because they don't need to worry about public opinion. 
And as you say, that might suit European nations and good luck to them, but it didn't suit Britain given its history and I think the importance of liberal ideas in Britain. Yeah, and importance of liberal ideas and the centrality of parliament. Yeah. You cannot tell the story of the United Kingdom without parliament. The biggest events in our history, the Reformation, the Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, the resistance to the Nazis, they were all primarily experienced as parliamentary moments. It's a much easier thing to sideline the Spanish Cortes or something, which is a fairly weak body anyway, than to do the equivalent thing in a country like yours or ours, where there is this tradition of parliamentary supremacy. Yes, indeed. I wanted to finish our conversation with your reflections on lockdowns. I think like you, I was quite horrified at the behaviour of my fellow countrymen. There was a, an almost uniform acceptance that our liberties would be given up because of COVID, that we wouldn't question what we were being told by government or by health officers on a daily basis, that we would turn our system from one of a free, open society, a democratic society into an authoritarian one, literally overnight and without question. I had always thought Australians, I believe this Anzac myth, that Australians were brave, irreverent, lackadaisical, we would look after our mates, but our mates would come before any of us worried about the government or authority. But no, we were quite comfortable with authority, apparently. And in fact, more than comfortable, made, yeah, demanding we loved of it. it. Demanding we demanded of it. Yeah. It. yeah. It's unbelievably depressing. In January 2020, when I was reading about cities in China being quarantined, I was thinking, thank God this couldn't happen in a country like mine. And boy, did I get that wrong. I made the same mistake that you did. I'm driven to the slightly horrifying conclusion that actually an awful lot of liberal open society is very artificial in the sense that it has to be taught. The values that sustain it don't come naturally and have to be inculcated. And that under the skin, we are very tribal creatures. I think we evolved for a million years in kin groups where there was some kind of alpha male taking decisions and then everyone else lived under a kind of communism. So in that sense, a Putinite society will come much more easily than a liberal society like ours. And that it only takes a little knock, a sense of crisis or shared threat for those authoritarian tribal instincts to overwhelm all of the careful balances that sustain a free society. Well, I think if you look at history, democracy is a rarity. And we are, as you say, we are much more used to being under some sort of authoritarian rule. And we've been going backwards. You and I grew up thinking that however unnatural it was, people were at least getting the hang of it and that once you had tasted freedom, you wouldn't want to go back. And for about 70 years after the end of the Second World War, there was a gradual spread of the rule of law and personal freedom and parliamentary democracy and political pluralism. It wasn't solid, it was a fitful process, but the overall trend was pretty hard to dispute. At some point after 2010, that started going into reverse. Even before the lockdowns, there was already a rise in authoritarianism. And you could see that lots of different outfits measured. The Economist Intelligence Unit does a league table. There's a thing called Ideas, there's Freedom House, there's a thing called the Democracy Index. They all have slightly different methodologies, but they were all telling the same story, that at some point between 2010 and 2015, the move towards freedom stalled and began to go into reverse. And of course, that has been massively exacerbated by the lockdowns and by the change in mental chemistry occasioned by the lockdowns. And I'm now beginning to wonder whether the whole thing wasn't really artificial and contingent all the way through. If you think about the stories we tell, never mind our fairy tales, but think of the science fiction 
Think of Star Wars or Dune or Star Trek. It's all full of princesses and emperors. And yes. on some deep level, I think we just think that this is the natural way to be governed because we're still thinking with our hunter-gatherer brains and we're accustomed to autocracy. And so I'm beginning to form the terrifying thought that maybe these liberal democratic societies that have come about in the last, at most, the last three or four hundred years in English-speaking societies, and much more recently than that for the rest of the world, may be like a, an interglacial between two ice ages, and that we may be heading towards a world that is much more Putinite than Anglospherist. After all, if you were brought forward in time from the era of Nebuchadnezzar or Amenhotep or something, you would recognize Putin or Xi or even Erdogan as a much more obvious way of ordering a society than ours. Maybe that's our grisly future. Do you think COVID-19 has acted as some sort of accelerant on democratic decline then? Yes. You'd say it started in 2010 in terms of all the I think COVID accelerated lots of things, some good things and some bad things, right? It accelerated the flight from high street shops to online. It accelerated the trend to working from home. But yes, I think it has accelerated the trend to big government and authoritarian government and almost as bad contingent government in the sense that there is an increasing tendency, even in the world's oldest and most successful democracies, for people only to accept election results when their side wins. Which again, in a way, the miracle is that they ever didn't. The the amazing thing is that for all these hundreds of years, people were willing to accept, if you like, the leader from outside their tribe, the people that they thought were going to make a mess of things, because they elevated process over outcome and because they really believed that the peaceful changeover of power and the verdict of the ballot box was an intrinsic value. And thank God they did believe that. And it created the safest and freest and happiest and most prosperous places that the human race has ever known. But it's an extraordinarily difficult thing for people to accept. And once you stop teaching people that, once you stop hammering it into the heads of young people that if we don't accept when our party loses, then we are going to live in nasty places where you have no rule of law and where you can be arrested for nothing, people are very naturally going to go back to doing that as they've started doing in the US, where every election now is just the firing the starting gun for a series of legal battles. Absolutely. But the strength of American institutions did show they are strong enough to withstand one onslaught in terms yeah. of their capital riots. The guard, so the guardrails have been badly dented. They have been dented. Does it mean that they've now proved their value or does it mean that one more tap and they're gone? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. To end on an optimistic note, because I know you are a rational optimist, Can we turn the tide back in the favour of freedom? Yes, but I think we can't just sit back and wait for it to happen, as you would with an actual tide. This is a process of education and acculturation and habituating people to ideas that do not come naturally, such as the idea that people we don't like might be right about things, or the idea that there isn't an absolute truth that is known by everyone at all times and you just need to see it, that we rely on the scientific method and we rely on empiricism and testing and so on. These are all difficult ideas, but they are all ideas that can be taught. And if you and I don't see them as difficult ideas, and if your listeners don't see them as difficult, that is because of the education that we were lucky enough to experience. We wouldn't have thought that left to our own devices. Now, I think it is possible to teach these things, and as important to model them in schools. If you want to teach free speech, for example, you don't just tell people about John Milton and J.S. Mill and so on, you have to model it. You have to show people how it works. And you can do that. For example, I um, teach at a summer school run by a guy from Melbourne, actually. Originally, he became an Oxford academic, and he now runs this thing called the John Locke Institute. And the John Locke Institute prepares kind of 16, 17-year-olds for Oxbridge 
entry or Ivy League equivalents in humanities subjects. But while he's doing the course, he also tries to inoculate them against the cancel culture that they will experience on campus. So, for example, he does this exercise that he calls the ideological Turing test. So the ideological Turing test was invented by the American libertarian Brian Kaplan. So the original Turing test, Alan Turing's test, was could you design a computer that was so lifelike that somebody in a conversation couldn't tell whether it was a human being? And Brian's twist on this is, can you argue the other side's position so convincingly that people can't tell what your actual beliefs are? They really think that you... Great exercise. It's a great exercise. And so he would divide people into teams and the audience would have to guess whether you actually (laughs) believed what you were saying. The beauty of it is that on each team, there'd be someone who really did believe. It would be a hot button issue. Should we knock down statues or should we ban private schools or whatever? And there'd be one person who really thought it and one who didn't. The point was they had to really listen to each other. Yeah in preparing to try and win the contest. They had to really listen to what the arguments were on the other side. And every time I go to one of his summer schools, I think, why doesn't every secondary school in the country do this as a matter of course? Why isn't it routine? But I'm afraid that instead of doing that, they're doing the opposite. They are encouraging identity politics. They're teaching people that the most important thing is that they're white or female or whatever it is. And that is just incompatible with a free society. Yes, and forgets the universality of our values and what brings us together as human beings is our individual dignity and our care for our family and our fellow man or woman. And therefore our equality as citizens, which is the political expression of that. Thank you very much, Daniel Hannon, for joining me on Afternoon Light. It's been an absolute pleasure, as I knew it would be, and enjoy the rest of your time Thank you, Georgina. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. That's it for this week's episode of Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. Please make sure to subscribe and catch up on our latest online content on our website or on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. 